You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that I would talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that, and you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread... On that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek, but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts. Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, Pastor Bruss, today we are taking a listen to Andrew Farley once again. He has made his way in 1 Corinthians to the portion where St. Paul deals with the sacrament of the altar. But before we begin, I heard something else this week. There is another pastor, we've critiqued him before, and he's talking about voting, and he's talking about stewardship. And I just want you to hear the verses that he uses and tell us what you think. Now, stewardship means to manage all the resources and the opportunities that are provided to us by God for His glory. So it's just managing his resources, managing his opportunities that he gives to us. In other words, everything belongs to God and we are just stewards. I'm just a steward of what God has given me. And I want to be faithful as a steward to everything that God has given to me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter four and two, it says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And so the Apostle Paul is saying that it's a requirement in, as a Christian that whatever we have been entrusted with, that we would be faithful to it. In other words, we would be good stewards with what God has given us. In my personal life, I, I happen to own a Jeep. I love my Jeep. And I have to kind of at times uh, rethink about my Jeep, that it's not my Jeep, but it is God who has given me the ability to, to earn some money, to be able to buy that Jeep, and honestly, I like to say it is God's Jeep and he has just entrusted to me its care. So I don't take the ownership possessiveness of it. I'm just a steward of what God has given me. There are so many other areas in our life that we are stewards of. For me in my life, uh, I believe that God has given me an amazing wife and an amazing family. Therefore, I'm devoted to them. I love them. I do all I can to care for them because I love them, but also I believe it's something that God has given to me to be a great steward of. 
Now, in this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 2, the Apostle Paul is speaking about his ministry at this time when he says it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Paul's talking about the trust of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is saying that he has been entrusted with this, and he views this, op, this opportunity as an obligation to steward that responsibility for God's glory. And so I believe that whether it's money, our time, our opportunities, or our ministries, and yes, even our vote, that it is an opportunity to be a steward for God in those areas. I don't think his general thought is inappropriate, that the Lord has placed into our hands all sorts of stuff, our station in life, and, and other things like that. I, it's a misappropriation of the First Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, for sure. And see, that's why I wanted to play this for you, because this is typical Andrew Farley, is it not? He makes a great point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the exegesis wouldn't bear this out. Exactly. Right. So let's go back to the text that this pastor just read, and let's explain it the way that Paul meant for it to be explained. It was not this universal, one-size-fits-all type of stewardship. There are other passages in the Bible that I think could bear that out. Way better. He's spoken about his vocation as father and husband. Well, let's, how about the end of Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 even. Uh, he's spoken about his vocation as a citizen. Well, what about Romans chapter 13? Uh, or Jesus' directions, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. He could even have gone to Genesis chapter 1, where the Lord gives Adam the crown of his creation, dominion over the creation, as a kind of general overarching thing. And so for Lutherans, what you're talking about here is vocation. That is, you hit it right on the head. So Lutheran hearers are going to think, when I say what I'm going to say, that I'm smoking something. But it is not Lutheran to think about stewardship as the kind of general conduct of a Christian in the Christian life. The way to think about it as a Lutheran is to, to say it's all vocation. Now, stewardship must be a, a term that is derived from evangelical thinking or something like that that made its way into Lutheranism. So why would a person, you know, if you're thinking about stewardship as what I give to church, can this be spoken of vocationally? Well, of course it can. Uh, you go to the table of duties. Uh, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says, look, don't Barnabas and I have rights? Weren't all the priests in the temple taken care of by what was offered in the temple? There you go. There's your Christian stewardship. And what's great for the Lutheran is when you start talking about vocation, there's an appendix in the back of the small catechism. It's the table of duties. It lists them all right there. And you know what? The passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it's not referenced. Among those things pertinent to laity. Right. Correct. But what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 4 is specifically to the pastor. Correct. And what does he say in verses 1 and 2? Let a man so reckon us as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. And as for the rest, it is sought among stewards that 
one be found faithful. So he's specifically talking there about the pastor, how the laity views the pastor, and really including in that point what the pastor does. He is the steward, not of the gospel per se, but of the mysteries. What is, what is Paul talking about there? So the mysteries are the sacraments. That's the, the ancient Greek word for sacrament. So those who claim that the word sacrament does not appear in the scriptures are, you know, wrong. The word steward here is oikonomos, okay? That, that's somebody who kind of uh, rules over the house, who sets the law for the household. And uh, that's exactly what Paul is figuring himself and Sosthenes here to be. Uh, and you can see, if, if you separate verse... One of chapter four from what has come before, you don't get the Wii U language, uh, and the Wii U language that's that's here is Paul and Sosthenes are the we, and the you is the Corinthian congregation, and so when Paul says uh, this is how one ought to regard us, he's not talking about all Christians; he's talking about Paul and Sosthenes. You touched on it here briefly. For those who do not believe that the sacraments are found in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, when you read this, this is why my ears perked up when this guy said this, because I'm thinking he is walking right over this bar of gold that's in the road, thinking it is nothing but, you know, a sack of pebbles. Right. What what would the mysteries be in, in the evangelical mind? It must just be like, uh, you know, the profundities of God. I have no like idea. That. I have no I, idea. I really yeah. don't. Let me pull down a commentary real that, quick that'd be and interesting. just, just and, see. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to talk on for a sec. Okay. Yeah, the term mysterion is an ancient Greek term for objects used in cult worship. And when I say cult worship, I mean um, the worship of the deities of ancient Greece, notably in mystery religions, that actually imparted the knowledge or the spiritual benefit uh, that they portrayed. And so this is exactly what happens in baptism, right? You are baptized into Christ. Well, what does it portray? It portrays your drowning through the death of Jesus and your rising again to new life, well, what does it actually impart? Well, then you drown with Christ and are risen to new life. So I have it here. This is a John MacArthur commentary. So, you know, he's a big wig in the evangelical world. He says this word, as you said, mysterion, is used in the New Testament and that which is hidden and can be known only by divine revelation. Okay, so we're, we're Track, tracking so far. Right. As a steward of God's mysteries, a minister is to take God's revealed word and dispense it to God's household. He is to dispense all of God's word, holding nothing back. Paul could tell the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That which is profitable is all Scripture. The reason so many Christians have spiritual malnutrition is that so many preachers dispense an unbalanced diet of biblical truth. What they preach may be scriptural, but they do not preach the full counsel, the whole purpose of God. Well, that's an excellent critique of much of 
preaching. That's why electionary is so helpful, number one. But he's missing the he's missing the point on he the mis- just, mysteria. Yeah, he just right. stepped over this bar of gold. Right. And what a, so one of the mysteria for sure is God's word. There's no question about it. But God's word informs us of these mysteries. Of these other of these other mysteria. Yeah. These means by which God reveals his gracious intention to fallen humanity. And this is the difference between that which is a secret and that which is a mystery. You know, a secret is something that is meant to remain hidden. Mm-hmm. A mystery, all you got to do is watch an episode of Scooby-Doo. I mean, at the end, we spray some spray on some guy's face, and it's... It it's reveals mis- him. It's yeah. Mr. Henderson! Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't from you for you meskly kids <laughs> and that dog, right? I mean, a mystery is that which God wants to reveal. And as you say, the way it's revealed, and the way MacArthur says it, the way it's revealed is through divine revelation, the revealing. But to suggest that that's all there is to it? To suggest that that divine revealing is restricted to the word only is the problem. Right, right. And to fail to see the word connected with the water in baptism and the word connected to the uh, bread and wine in the sacrament of the altar is is the failing here. Okay, so that takes us right to Andrew Farley. Well, okay, I figured it was going to get there. Well, it was an obsession. It was an obsession with confession. I mean, we sat there on a Sunday morning, and it was PowerPoint slide after PowerPoint after PowerPoint. First, in order to participate in the Lord's Supper, we were asked to confess our sins, our individual sins. And boy, were they many. I mean, if you surveyed the last day, the last week, the last month, Even the last since we had enjoyed a Lord's Supper. My goodness, three to four months in that church perhaps. And so we were rewinding and confessing and rewinding and confessing and trying to qualify. Trying to get right in order to be ready when the cup would come. It was South Bend, Indiana some 16 or 17 years ago, my wife and I sat side by side on a Sunday morning uh, trying to get right in order to celebrate communion. And first, we were invited to celebrate through confessing our individual sins, and then it was the sins of our city, and then it was the sins of our nation. And then it was the sins of the world that we were to confess. Imagine that. Can you imagine that, Pastor Bros? That sounds like a disaster. I've been in, in certain situations where I've been, the confession of sins that's been printed in the bulletin uh, has made me confess sins that I don't think I'm guilty of or that, that I'm guilty of uh, just by uh, living in a fallen society, like racism. Honestly, I'm not a racist, but... You know, for me to have to confess on behalf of the entire community or state or world uh, their racism, well, that, that's not what God wants from me. So he's got a good point here. And look, I don't know how this congregation was figuring the role of confession in receiving the sacrament of the altar. But as a Lutheran, what it, who is the sacrament for? Sinners. Oh, for sinners. Okay, so, and we receive it in faith, and faith trusts the promise in the thing, and so 
if it's for sinners and I don't recognize myself as a sinner, then do I receive it worthily or unworthily? This is amazing how you have this uncanny ability to listen to a sermon for about two or three minutes and you already know the problem. It blows me away. The whole part of the scripture that talks about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is being interpreted, as he said, you got to get right before you can partake. Right, and that is a very un-Lutheran perspective, and, oh, and very unscriptural. There you go. Very unscriptural, right? I mean, what, what constitutes our worthiness? It's faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And see, that's the big deal. The unworthy manner is not believing what Jesus said about the sacrament, about the mysterion. The Word reveals, as MacArthur said, divine revelation. What is it revealed? This is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat, take, drink for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes. And And to not believe that is doing it in an unworthy manner. Correct. Not because you're a racist. Right, right. That's a very good point. And so the idea isn't, uh, you know, in, in the Lutheran divine service, right, we begin with confession and absolution. That's the very first thing that happens. I think people have a misunderstanding about what's happening there, as if this confession and absolution is kind of scrubbing off the sin from us so that when we go to the altar, we can handle these holy things appropriately, not as, not as sinners, but as those who have been absolved. That's not what's happening at all. It's that there are these several moments in the divine service where God does what the divine service is created for, which is to forgive sins. Now, people might say, why? Look, if my sins are forgiven by the confession and absolution, why do I have to hear it in the sermon again? And why do I have to, you know, receive it in the sacrament of the altar again? Oh, man, who are you? Were you there when he laid the foundations of the earth? This is how God set it up. Accept his gifts. Right. When people come in and they're absolved of their sins at the very beginning, God wants to give more gifts. I mean, this is grace upon grace. This is this is like the, the waves of the ocean just continuously crashing onto the shore. This is what God wants to do. Yeah, and Luther puts it this way in the small catechism uh, in the explanation of the third article. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers in Christ, right? Richly, not just like, uh, here's your token. I talk about it all the time, but uh, here at St. John's in the triptych uh, over the um, Rarados, over the altar, there's lots of images, but one of them is the hand, and the hand is opened, and the hand is extended down toward us. Yeah. And toward a cornucopia, because which the, is interesting, isn't it? Well, sure, yeah, right? Yeah. But he provides in for both body and soul. Mm-hmm. This is God saying, mm-hmm. "Receive the gifts." Uh, it's not a clenched hand, a stingy hand, right? Like God's letting the sand trickle out between his fingers. Yeah. And then it was the sins of our congregation, the sins of our community, and on and on it went for nearly forty-five minutes. We were confessing slide after slide after slide, and ritual after ritual. It was an absolute obsession with confession. Where was the focus? It was on us. And as you look to your left or look to your right, 
There were people hunched over, some of them crying, some of them surveying their poor performance over the last period of time and concluding that they just weren't worthy and maybe, just maybe, they were supposed to let the cup pass. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I grew up scared. I grew up scared of the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine it? Well, maybe it's not so hard for you to imagine, right? I mean, maybe you grew up like me, scared of the Lord's Supper. What do I mean by that? Well, you're never quite sure if you've made it. Here comes the tray with the bread. Here comes the tray with the juice on it. And whether it's the bread or the juice, maybe, just maybe, you're not right with God enough to partake with confidence. Look, Pastor Kearns, our listeners have heard this plenty of times, but juice, you got a problem with Welch's? <laughs> so what did the Lord Jesus institute his sacrament with? Wine? He instituted it with wine. You know, I know everybody's heard this, but let's not let it fall out of, we, we don't want to let this go unnoticed as if, as if now it's getting a pass. Okay. It doesn't get a pass. So the reason... We still use bread. Because Jesus used bread. But the reason we use juice is why? Because evangelicals are inheritors of the pro-prohibitionist movement in the early 20th century. A certain piety that disdains anything alcoholic. Right. Carrie Hatchett, is that the name? Is that... Wasn't she here? Wasn't yeah, she, she in was Kansas? In, she yeah. was in Kansas, yeah. The reason she was in Kansas is because the largest uh, horticultural export in Kansas was wine. Oh. The, so like the Flint Hills were full of vineyards back in the day. And then Prohibition came along and look at what it did. It wiped out the livelihood of these families. Now they're ranchers. And so I grew up scared. Maybe you did too. To make matters worse, there's even a stream of Christianity that says, well, God might actually punish you at the Lord's Supper. Have you heard this? It's the idea that you might get weak, that you might get sick, that you might even die because of the Lord's Supper taken in the wrong way. Huh. I wonder why any branch of Christianity might say that, Pastor Kearns. It might be something made up, don't you believe? Yeah, you know, it sounds so horrific that it had to be the invention of some, you know, what, frontier preacher trying right, to scare right, the bejesus right, out of everybody. Right. Where would somebody where would somebody come up with that? Golly, I wonder if you looked around passages that had to do with the words of institution, if you might find something like in First Corinthians eleven, verse twenty nine. What? Yeah, yeah. So he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the body. And this is why some of you have grown weak and fallen asleep. So discerning the body. See, whose body? Is it my body as the communicant, or is it the body that the pastor is elevating in the divine service? It's the body he's giving to you. It's the body that is the bread? The body that is the bread, right. And the bread that is the body. Just as Christ himself says, this is my body. And see, this is what always blows me away about Farley McFarley here. He reads the scriptures, but yet he does not believe it. What's astonishing to me 
is for him to make a claim like this. Now, I don't know if he's going to circle back to 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and following. Is he going to touch on that? I don't think so. Well, for crying out loud, I mean, that's that's totally irresponsible. That's like um, taking your scissors to the scriptures, pertinent to the question you're asking, and saying they don't apply. That's problematic. The whole counsel of God. Were you saying that? Yeah, the MacArthur stuff, right? It is the obligation of the pastor to proclaim the whole counsel of God to the people. And he's dar- he's exactly right. MacArthur, not McFarley. MacArthur, yes. And it all comes from this passage in 1 Corinthians where there is a bit of mystery, there is a bit of interpretation needed, or else we go off in a ravine of misunderstanding and misinterpretation, and then the whole thing becomes about guilt and us and trying to get right and stay right with God, just like we've been experiencing The church, globally, maybe, just maybe, we've gotten this wrong. Oh, you you think maybe we've gotten this wrong? Who's the we there? Exactly. This is classic Farley, right? The kind of, I'm going to stand in contradistinction to 2,000 years of church teaching. Now, I'm not saying that, and you're not saying, that the last 2,000 years have been free of dross. There's plenty of dross in there. But... It's interesting how he, how he talks about this. So he's got an, a hermeneutic here. And the hermeneutic is, is this going to make me feel guilty or is it not going to make me feel guilty? Okay. So an interpretation that makes me feel guilty apparently is a misinterpretation. And an interpretation that doesn't make me feel guilty is a good one. Okay, so that, that's, that's the beginning premise. Now, what that means is that he's got to shoehorn everything in the scriptures into that latter category. What do you do with God's law? I mean, didn't we hear this at the very start of this whole sermon series, the saint and sinner stuff? His hermeneutic was very obvious there. Don't feel guilty about your sin. You're a total saint. You're a total saint. And this is why he dismisses the simul justus et peccator. Sinners can't but help feel guilty. Jesus came to forgive sins, to cleanse the conscience through the forgiveness of sins. Who likes feeling guilty? No one does. But God uses even our guilt to drive us to Jesus. Okay, there's not many people who get the opportunity to name their own church. Now, I have had this opportunity because I planted a church, and clearly we needed a name, And I agonized over what to call this congregation. And this is before we had any people. It was just me and my wife. And I remember coming up with a list of names. And I actually went and stood in front of Walmart. And I just asked people, hey, we're new to town and we're getting ready to start a church. And I just wanted to get your opinion. A lot of people said, I'll give you my opinion. They read through the four or five names, and I just said, which one do you like? And they, they checked it. I still agonized. I wasn't going to go off of just what people thought. That Walmart thought, yeah. I still agonized. What do we call this church? McFarley calls his church church without religion. That makes a bold statement. Ours was just a nondescript 
church on the Cape because it was a church on the Cape. Yeah, the Cape yeah. Fear River. Right. So it really was more about location than anything. McFarley's church, just with the name, he is making a bold statement. It's almost like he had thought through all of the things that he was going to react against so as to come up with this name, Church Without Religion. I wonder if he if he did that or just decided, I'm going to adopt this general posture. I mean, this is, this is total niche marketing. People need to understand that. I can go to a church where the guy is messing it up with every denomination, with every standing doctrine of the church. That'd be exciting. Somehow or another, this is holier than the churches that have adopted following a person. As, as he would put it. Correct. Right. I mean, this is the appeal of the non-denoms. Seeing how it's not denominational, that it's more sacred. Right. More an ideal picture of the church, in, in a sense. Yeah. Yep. Just me and Jesus. So what you're saying is this is non-denom on steroids, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what this is. So then we have to say, why are we seeing what we see today? Nobody feels qualified. If you were to take that cop and to take that bread and ingest it immediately with a grin on your face, sitting on the front row of almost any church around the world, someone might say, well, that person is arrogant. <laughs> that person thinks that they don't have to get right. Who do they think they are? And so we've seen a lack of confidence, almost a sheepishness about taking the Lord's Supper as if it's something that is so holy and we are so unholy. It is so righteous and we are so unrighteous, but maybe it will make us right. How do you even begin to unpack what he's saying here? Well, first of all, he needs to go to a sacramental church, which would help him an awful lot to see the, the people who do sit in the front row and with great joy receive the Lord's body and blood. You know, it's not the case that everybody's walking up with a huge grin on their face to receive the sacrament, but sometimes they do. Because they know exactly what's being delivered to them. Exactly, exactly. And and this whole thing, you know, it's holy, we're not, blah, 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 and... Uh, you know, I'm never going to be worthy enough. Well, in a sacramental church, in the evangelical Lutheran church, you would know exactly this is the point. You are not holy, and this is forgiving your sins. So this is why the people who understand this, they understand this mystery as it's been revealed in the divine word. Yeah, they can, they can walk up to the rail realizing that they are poor, miserable sinners. But they can also realize that they're getting ready to receive exactly what God wants to give them. Yep. And then, what else do we see today? We've told our children not to participate. They're too young. <laughs> too young to celebrate the body and the blood of Christ. What did he just call it? He just called it the body and blood of Christ. <laughs> so, yeah, the vocabulary is not evading him. It's just that he refuses to put it in its right peg hole, right? His critique is obviously not against the Evangelical Lutheran Church, but this is a, an analogous practice in the Evangelical Lutheran Church that we don't give this to 
little children. Whereas, if I'm not mistaken, say Greek Orthodox would. They, they do commune infants, actually, yep. And I think it's just one time um, until they, I'm not 100% sure, but anyway, be that as it may, you know, there, there's a reason why, even in, in their wrong practice, there's a reason why they do this. And it's and because St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 says, let a man examine himself and thus eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But he's not examining himself for sin, as Andrew Farley started out. He's not examining himself for sin uh, in the world, in the community, all of that. But he is recognizing himself as a sinner guilty of God's wrath. Sure. Right. But he's examining himself to see if I believe what this truly is. And he has to be taught what it truly is before he can come to that understanding. Right. And just like if Andrew Farley came to our church today, okay, you just said it'd be great if he goes to a sacramental church. Okay, so he comes to St. John's here in Topeka. We would not commune him. No, because we don't. We would need to know that he has the ability to examine himself, and he's demonstrated he doesn't. Not in the sense of self-evaluation for sin. But partly that. But at least... In this context, for the Lord's Supper, for the sacrament of the altar, it is, what do you believe about what is happening right now? Right. In this service, at this moment, as the pastor, 1 Corinthians 4, is stewarding the mysterion. Correct. Right. And so there's the pastoral responsibility in all this too, right? So this is why Lutheran pastor doesn't just leave it up to people to examine themselves. If he's done his job properly as a steward, he's prepared them to examine themselves. That's proper stewardship. But when you say that proper examination, though, has taken place in the Lutheran liturgy as one confesses that they're a poor, miserable sinner? I would. I I do think that... And they have received the absolution from the pastor's mouth... Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes. Then let it be done for you as you believe. I, I do think that we fall short of the promise of our confession, however, uh, in not having private confession uh, as regularly as we ought to, and in not um, having the, you know, what was called, I guess, most lately, announcement for communion. It was really examination for communion. It was using the Christian questions and their answers uh, which is partially what is your confession of faith and what is your confession about yourself as a sinner. And so this historically took place the day before uh, church on Sunday. So it was a Saturday. You know, if somebody couldn't get by there on Saturday, I'm sure the pastor would meet with somebody during the week or what have you. But this is, number one, what allowed the altar guild to know how many hosts to, to have available but it also was the pastor properly examining said person. And then, of course, this, this practice was folded in to what happens on Sunday morning with the confession and absolution. Correct. What I've heard is what destroyed that, the invention of the telephone. Part of the theory, I think, also cars. Right. right. So people live away from their neighborhood church. They can't just walk two blocks down the street to see the pastor. The reason the phone got in the way of it was people started 
calling in their confession. They wouldn't even show up at church. They phoned it in, as it were. Right, right. We've told our visitors not to celebrate because we don't know where they stand spiritually. Again, have we made it about trying to qualify instead of making it about what Jesus said it's really all about? What did Jesus say it's really all about? It's about the forgiveness of sins. And can a person receive that gift unworthily? Yes, of course. If they regard themselves either not as a sinner or not in need of the forgiveness of sins or not recognize that it is his body and blood by which he conveys this forgiveness of sins, then they receive it unworthily. And if there's not a pastor there protecting, I mean, this is... The flock. Right. Denying somebody is an act of love. It's because we don't want these consequences that the Scripture actually lays out. We don't want these consequences to befall anybody. Right. Even an atheist. We're, right. You know, if we, if we hated atheists, it's like, take this body, take this <laughs> right. blood right now so right. you can get sick and weak and die. Right. And, you know, when we have visitors at our church... I think I even heard you say it this past Sunday as I was standing beside you. A young man comes up to the to the rail. You know, you know that he's not an LCMS Lutheran. But I suspect. You, you yep. said, are you baptized? I think your first mm-hmm. question is, you know, to anybody that you don't know, are you LCMS Lutheran? If there's somebody visiting here from wherever and they're LCMS, then they they have been catechized and taught and believe correctly what it is that you're putting in their mouth. Correct. If somebody says, I'm not an LCMS Lutheran, all you can do at that point is bless them. If they're baptized, you give them a, a blessing that asks that the Lord would keep them in the in the faith of their baptism. And if they're not baptized, you ask that the Lord would preserve them to the day of their baptism when they receive his gifts. Yeah, right. And that's not an unloving practice. Unbelievers. There might be some unbelievers out there. We don't want them focusing on Jesus. And do you see, again and again, we're making it into some bar that we must get over in order to participate because we're never quite right without some sort of cleansing ritual. This is what we see today. Not just here in Texas not just in the United States, but all over the world for centuries on end, could it be that we've gotten this thing wrong? Could it be that we've gotten this thing wrong? The answer is unambiguously what? Yes! Yeah, we got it all wrong. These people with church without religion, yeah, they've got it all wrong. They have got it all wrong, but the ch- boy, he, what he's saying has the church for 2,000 years gotten oh, of course close not. communion wrong. Of no. course not. It's been, it's been as straight as an arrow. Let I mean, me, is this cognitive dissonance? Is this what this is? It's got to be. Let me read to you. I'm going to read the whole paragraph uh, that, that he ought to be thinking about here. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and following. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So the we there, of course, is Paul and um, the Christians. What he's got to say is if the church has it wrong for 2,000 years, so did the Apostle Paul, who says of this whole section, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That means that Jesus got it wrong. Oh my goodness, that reminds me of the first John passage where you're making Jesus out to be a liar. Right, right. I mean, this is blasphemy. I mean, in saying that Jesus is a liar. Right. If you say the church has got it wrong and the church is lying, as you say, and Paul got it wrong, even though he got it directly from Jesus, and Jesus was wrong, and everybody's a liar except Farley McFarley, this is problematic. Well, there is a passage that says examine yourself in 1 Corinthians, the focus of today, and this is where, well, this is where it all stems from. Examine yourself. Oh, fantastic. He's going to read the passage you just read for us, Pastor Bruss. Here's how Paul puts it. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, ouch, he will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Do you want that on your conscience? Do you want that on your hands? But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And friends, it is almost like we have taken this passage in and of itself with no context, with no surrounding verses, with no understanding, and pulled it up and put it on a pedestal and then bashed people with it. Let's dim the lights and play the sad music, and survey the last year of performance, and you've got seven minutes before that cup arrives, and you better examine yourself. And with weeping and nearly gnashing of teeth, we make the Lord's Supper a living hell. Is this what God intended? Farley McFarley makes me just vacillate between anger and then at this point when I, when I hear him, you know, I'm, I'm really sad that, that he was taught wrong. He's taking that which was incorrectly taught to him. He sees that it was wrong. But yet, as we've said before, he's going to fall off the other side of this horse. You know, and thinking about this, you know, this kind of hand-wringing self-loathing that he's talking about. I don't know what churches that that occurs in. I, I don't know. I've just never been in one because I don't go to lots of churches. But if you go to a, an evangelical Lutheran divine service, this is a high celebratory point in the divine service. The music reaches a crescendo with the with the kadosh 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 the holy 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 lord god of sabaoth and then the blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and and you know at least in our congregation the chime is going during that whole time right and it's this and this is right on the heels of of the pastor getting done with a proper preface saying therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, and then we just jump into this. I, I, I agree with you. 
what a sad thing. He needs to go to an evangelical Lutheran church and see this properly handled. But I would say what he needs to do is just read the church fathers. Pastor Kearns, he can't do that because he's the church without religion and their religion. Oh. Because they're the ones who came up with this stuff. You want to send him some copies of some church fathers? No, I've spent enough. <laughs> he's got enough. Look, he's got he's got he enough does. to read here for the next couple years, to read and chew on and right. inwardly digest. Evangelicals, they really can't see historically past the days of their grandmother. They just really think that Jesus walked with their grandmother, then their mom and dad, and then it's them. They think that they are that close to the days of Jesus. They do not take into account the vast wealth of writings that pious Christians have written about. But if we can go back to, say, the disciples of the apostles. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is died, resurrected, ascended. He's got these apostles. These apostles accumulate unto themselves disciples. Those disciples wrote things. They're accessible. You go back and you see what they said about the body and blood of Christ. This was a huge help for me as I was thinking through these things. Not that these guys are infallible. That's, right. that's not what we're saying here. They are witnesses to the truth in some cases, and often in many cases. It really does bring about like a crisis of belief. Mm -hmm. At some point, you've got to say, what do I believe? Uh, right, as an evangelical, you're reading um, what the church fathers, first generation, says about, about the sacrament, and they say this is really the body and blood of Christ. They don't use the word represent. They didn't correct the apostolic record, and that's got to throw you for a loop. Farley has access to these things. Correct. Yeah, they're all online. The passage in question continues, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Interesting. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And you can see why a stream of, of Christianity out there would turn this into the idea that God is going to weaken you. If you don't do the Lord's Supper rightly, God is going to strike you with weakness, they say. If you don't participate in the correct manner, God is going to smite you with sickness. Or... They take sleep to mean die, and God might even kill you at the Lord's Supper. Pastor Kearns, if God says this, and you respond to God, no, that, does, is God pleased with that? Oh, clearly not. Don't we have many examples of people in the Bible? <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, start to, let's start to list them off. How about Cain? How about, okay, how about Cain? How about uh, Abraham and his... Uh, mistrust of of God's promise, right? God says this: your own your own seed from your wife Sarah, and He says, "No, that is God pleased with that." No. What about uh, Aaron's sons? Good. God says, "This is the type of incense that I want you to burn in here in during worship," and they clearly say, "No, not this, but that," and they burn a 
strange fire. Guess who Aaron's boys meet? Jehovah Nukem. (laughs) (laughs) And this is just all over the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. How about Ananias and Sapphira? Good. How about the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus is constantly tangling with? Do they stand under the judgment of God? God has said this, and they say, no, God, that. So God has said, this is my body, this is my blood. What about the sons of Korah, where the earth opened up and swallowed them whole? Right. Or how about the uh, children of Israel? I mean, this is in chapter 10. The children of Israel who sat down and played, that is, you know, had an orgy, right? As, as Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments. Was God pleased with them? I mean, Paul says God was not pleased with many of them. And they were put, they were killed. So your point is what Farley is doing is he's hearing God say this, and he is saying, no, it's that. And sacramentarians hear God saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and they say, no, God, that. This is for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and they say, no, God, it's for us to remember you. Um, You know, you can think of all sorts of different ways in which this is misconstrued. And this is ridiculous. And to think that there's no consequence for that behavior. Right. Where is he pulling this one from? I mean, honestly, where is he pulling this from? This is is blasphemy. This is a misuse of the Lord's name. This is the espousal of falsehood in God's name. This is breaking the second commandment. What does God promise about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I mean, this is significant. Now, of course, we might say if this were true, then the churches on Sunday morning around the world would be littered with corpses, wouldn't they? I mean, somebody would be doing it wrong, and there would be bodies laying in aisle four and aisle seven and aisle nine throughout churches around the planet. And yet this is not occurring. How can he say that it's not happening? Is it because he thinks that this is supposed to happen immediately? Right, so he's created a reductio ad absurdum and, you know, made a, well, I mean, this is a fallacious argument. Right. So it's a, it's a reduction to the absurd, number one. Number two, um, you know, Paul in this same letter says, how can you say that the dead don't rise? Let's just make the same reductio ad absurdum that he is make, making here about that. Are you kidding me? The dead rise? If, if the dead rose... We would be driving by cemeteries and, whoa, there'd be people popping up out of their graves, ashes coming back together, constituting new bodies. See, don't fall for this fallacious argumentation. This is bad stuff. And the Lord has spoken. And to to be so arrogant as to say this is untrue is demonic. So we must say then this mysterious passage, this challenging scripture, what does it mean? And what does it mean for us personally when it comes to being qualified for the Lord's Supper? If we judged ourselves rightly, he continues, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned 
along with the world. An ominous passage, is it not? A challenging passage, is it not? It begs all kinds of questions about what we should be doing on a Sunday morning in celebrating the Lord's Supper. What should it look like? What should our attitude be? Should we be shrinking back in fear, wondering if we can partake? Or should we be like that person I described on the front row who partakes with confidence, even a grin as he raises his glass to heaven and toasts the finished work of Jesus Christ? What attitude can we have? What's appropriate? Is fear warranted? Will God strike us? These and so many other questions can hit us as we participate in a communion service. Maybe those questions come to the people at his church, but I don't think they come to you. and They don't come to me, and I don't think they come to any of our people who attend St. John's Lutheran Church. No, because they've been rightly instructed in what the Lord wants to do through this sacrament. Let me come up with an analogy here. Up, up, and all analogies limp, right? But, um, you know, you've got a big trash compactor. And, boy, you watch that thing operate. And it, it's, you know, the tons of pressure that it exerts upon trash are just unbelievable and scary. And they can do real damage. But somebody comes along and says, you know, don't don't be afraid of this machine. This is what you do. You uh, take your garbage and see this hole. You throw it in here. And then when you're done, pull the lid down and then press this button and, and walk away, you know. And there, the trash compactor is a great blessing. But if it's just this mysterious machine with a hole with tons and tons of pressure going onto it, to misuse it is truly dangerous well yeah i mean i saw star wars and uh chewbacca and leia and luke they were they were all uh, and cp3o were all in the trash compactor oh i again i'm sorry <laughs> this is sort of a running joke i don't uh, get popular references at all <laughs> but you were like 12 when this came out i forget about these things <laughs> r2d2 you know he was yeah. the one trying to stop the compactor was he, was from he? okay squashing the <laughs> is i i don't have memory of this <laughs> so the point is the compactor when it's used the way it's supposed to be used it's safe for you but if you happen to be in the compactor That's no bu- no no bueno right no bueno at all the point is this fear is taken away only by the truth that god attaches to the sacrament of the altar. When there is truth attached to it, that it's his body, his blood for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take, eat. Take, eat, take, drink, do it in faith. It's it's nothing but joy. So what you would say is he is once again setting up a, a straw man argument. I think so. But of course, you know, for a sacramentarian who doesn't have the teaching straight on this, right? Where this is my act for God, of my my act of toasting Jesus is that what he sa- is that what he said lifting the glass to heaven and toasting Jesus give me a break I mean if 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 that's it and if I don't do this the right way 
God certainly will be displeased with me. I get it. So we're asking, what's it about? Well, this passage begins this way. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus was in the night in which he was betrayed. He took bread. That's the first thing we learn. Bread is involved. And then when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So straight from the words of Jesus, this is about celebrating Jesus. What? I mean, where did Jesus say, this is, my, this is a celebration for me? Well, and, you know evangelicals. I mean, they love to read the scriptures, and then, you know, they're, they're looking down at the scriptures, and then as soon as their head comes up, they give you something else other than what it says. I mean, he, he has just read exactly what it is all about. And he should have stopped right there, because as you said earlier, God says this. Right, and he has said, no, that. In a very pious way. Who's going to say that celebrating Jesus is bad? Right. Nobody, exactly. Nobody's no going to do gonna that. that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what, it, what is this like? This is like someone walking in and saying, I've got uh, two tickets for you and your wife to go see the Kansas City soccer team. And you say, great. And you drive off to Manhattan to watch the football game. So God has said, here's my gift to you. And you've said, yeah, we're going to replace it with something else. That's good. I mean, what's what's bad with a K-State football game? Nothing. But that's not what the... And, I mean, I'm analogies limp. That was a terrible one. Can you think of a better one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's like taking uh, marble countertops and saying, hey, I found a really good uh, veneer, this uh, this wood veneer. <laughs> That we can put on top of it. There you go. That's Honey, what do you think? That's way better. <laughs> That's way better. Just get some liquid nails, yeah. put a smear it on the uh, the marble countertop, and put this sweet plywood-looking veneer on it. Right. That's way better. That's a great analogy. So then we have to ask, is it about celebrating your performance? Is it about celebrating your past? Is it about diving into your recent works and your recent sins? Is it about surveying how you have been doing lately? Or does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? I, you know, I... I don't even have, I don't, what do you, you got anything? I don't even have words here. So he's gone so far. Exactly. So he he took a, he took a right turn off the top, like a 90 degree turn. Yeah. And now he's talking about something that's totally unrelated to the text at hand. And so, yeah, there's almost nothing to, nothing to say. Except, Harley, come (laughs) back! Eck, 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 eck. What a masterful job the enemy has done in taking one of the fundamental celebrations that a Christian can participate in and twisting it and turning it on its ear 
taking it and flipping it upside down so that the participant is consumed with themselves instead of obsessed with the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this is true to Farley McFarley here. What he just said is spot on. Well, I would say amen to to, to what Farley's saying. That, that's right? what I'm I saying. Mean, He's I mean, spot on the, here when he says this, the, that the, the devil has done this. But the him. problem is, he's doing it! Right, exactly. Exactly. So he's right. This is not, the sacrament of the altar is not an obsession over self at all. He's exactly right about that. In, in, in making this claim, he's missed what it is about. And what he's also missed too is, because he does not believe that God uses means... He doesn't understand that the devil uses means too. And the means that the devil is using is him. His own inventive, right? His, his desire for novelty and, yep, mm-hmm, yep. Since he was taught incorrectly. He's correcting the incorrection with an incorrection. That's it. Mm-hmm. And behind it all is the devil. I mean, you just got through saying it's demonic. Right. It, th- this is. When you, when you ignore the plain words of Scripture and say, God says this, and you say, no, that, that's demonic. Th- is this not what the devil did? Um, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. No, you oh, won't. Oh, come on. No, you won't. Yeah. Wow. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup Also, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Wow, that alone should raise some eyebrows. Are we making it about the new covenant? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What's Jesus talking about there? So... Diatheke is the underlying Greek word here, and uh, in <clears throat> in in many instances, this is used in the Old Testament in the in the Septuagint diatheke for translating uh, brith, uh, a covenant. Okay, but it also has a another meaning that is really apparent here uh, of of a testament, like a last will and testament. And mind you, I mean. The whole setup here is on the night in which he was betrayed. Okay, where does that betrayal lead? Well, it leads to his trial. It leads to his crucifixion. It leads to his death. This is the Lord's last will and testament for his people. And his words can't be set aside. You can't do that. The testator has made his testament, and that's it. Unfortunately, that's exactly what he's doing. But we've talked about this before. The Old Testament is written in animal blood. Jesus says, we, I mean, we think the New Testament is the 27 books of the Bible. And this is what, what we call it. But actually, it's because those works contain the New Testament. Just as the Old Testament contains the Old Testament and everything revolving around that testament... Then in the last 27 books, you have within it the New Testament. Jesus says, this cup 
is the New Testament. Right? Not the 27 books. Right. The This cup and what's in it is the New Testament. So what's in the cup? His blood. It wasn't his blood in the Old Testament. It was animal blood that pictured the coming of Christ. Sinless, without blemish. Uh, without blemish. Yeah. Only pagans drank blood. the blood right. in the Old Testament. Right. The Jews did not drink the blood. It was forbidden. Jesus says, this cup is the New Testament. I mean, every time I get to say those words, it just, it is mind-blowing. This cup is the New Testament in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I, I just, you, you've said everything that needs to be said in response to it. Now, do you see what has occurred among us? Globally, I'm talking about the body of Christ. Do you see what has occurred among us? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And then we sit and we do it in remembrance of me. Wow. Wow. If you're asking, how am I doing? You're not asking, what did Jesus do? And friends, that is what the Lord's Supper is about. It is not about, how am I doing? It is, what did Jesus do? No doubt. And one might add that a repentant self-examination is all part of this because, you know, Jesus says, physician, heal thyself. The, the healthy are not in need of a physician. But again, he's, he's not getting law and gospel in their right pockets here. The law's job is to show us our sin. And without that knowledge of sin, there can be no need for a Savior who saves us from sin. It's really simple. It could be solved much easier than he is. He's just making a train wreck out of this. Yeah, yeah. What was it Jake Tapper said? It's a hot mess inside a dumpster fire in a flaming train wreck. (laughs) That was the debate, right? Um, You want to tackle real quickly this whole notion of remembering and who's doing the remembering? Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Um, You know, I'll try to do this real quickly. But the word there is, um, in Greek, it's ace, tain, emain, anamnesin, unto my remembering. Now, what you all you've got to do is take this word anamnesis uh, and see the remembering going on here and look in the Old Testament and see where where remembering occurs. Well, it's always the Lord remembering his promises to his people and coming to their aid. And so this is a salvific thing that God does for his people. Now, uh, Jesus is not the direct object of this remembering. In other words, it's not our remembering him. It's Jesus remembering us. In Greek, with these suffixes in cis, the, the sigma, yota, sigma, um, that is a, what's known as an, an abstract verbal noun. You can possess those in one of two ways. You can possess them with an, uh, a personal possessive adjective, like Jesus does here, or you can possess them with a personal genitive pronoun, which Jesus does not do here. If the action of that verbal noun is directed at somebody, it's the genitive pronoun. If it is the person doing the remembering, 
then it is the personal possessive adjective, which is what Jesus uses. I'm sorry, that's a long... Is anyone going to understand that? The point is this. It is. It's total snore. What what did you you say? Total snore. But the point is, it's Jesus doing the remembering. What? Yeah. So it's Jesus coming to the aid. Do this unto... Um, unto my my remembering of my promise. Now, what is that promise? St. Paul actually fills this out. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come again. So we've got these two points of God remembering in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and then in his second coming when he takes all believers in Christ to himself. I think the accusation that would be made against what you just said is that now it seems that we are messing around with the text. What you're actually doing is you're clarifying what the Greek actually says as opposed to the way that it's translated in English. Correct. So the English text, the English translation, there's a long-standing problem with this. Um, and it, I, I thought, so we looked this up last time. I thought it might stem from the Vulgate. It doesn't. The Vulgate keeps the indeterminacy or introduces indeterminacy. It can be understood either as Jesus remembering his people or as his people remembering Jesus. That is not the case in Greek. In Greek, it is Jesus remembering his people. Just like, as you said earlier, God remembered Noah. God remembered Moses. God remembered Joshua. And what does he do then? He, he acts and saves them. So it's the English translation tradition that gets it goofed up. Which, again, was created by Calvinists. Well, yeah, I was going to say sacramentarians. Mm-hmm. right? So they're, so they're totally against this notion of... God coming to you through physical things. So they interpret the Greek as you better do the remembering. Right. And what does that do to the whole nature of the sacrament? Which way is the direction going then, Pastor Kurt? Exactly. It's me to God. It's Mm. going me to God. The directionality is all goofed up. And see, this is what Farley's saying. He's saying the, the directionality is from me to God and it's all screwed up. But guess what? His solution is still to keep the directionality the same. That's a good point. That is a good point. He just makes it happier. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The same way he did with uh, the simile when he said, hey, man, you know, know, there is no saint and sinner here. You know, you're a Christian who just, you know, sins. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just make it happy. Right. Okay, so so we've we we have seen the hermeneutic again. This hermeneutic has has reemerged, ha, ha, has it not? Um, that we noted at the start of this podcast that that he doesn't he doesn't like the the way that the words of verses twenty seven and following read because they sound kind of ominous, and so there must be an interpretation of those that that changes how they sound. And what he's done is he's put it through a hermeneutical machine where he treats them to a reductio ad absurdum and laughed them out of the Bible. And also, we see something signaled here, don't we? Something big. Something like a, 
a flag waving in the air to grab our attention. This celebration is about the new covenant. So maybe we, maybe we should be about the new covenant. Because every time we celebrate the bread and the wine, it's another reminder of what kind of church we are, of what kind of movement we are, of what kind of congregation we are, what kind of people we are. Every time we celebrate, Jesus tells us, you are new covenant. Not only that, your new covenant and I have qualified you. You are qualified because of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Andrew! Drew, Drew, Drew. <laughs> Come back! Heck, 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 heck. <laughs> he just... <laughs> he is gone. <laughs> this... this... <laughs> This one is, so when he says you are New Covenant, I, I mean, I hope he doesn't, I think he must mean like you are Missouri Synod. You're, in, a, in other words, I, well, I don't even know. I mean, because Jesus says, this is the New Covenant. Right. Has, right. And yes, or you Testament. partake of it. Yeah. So you belong to the New Covenant. You're within the New Covenant. But, but all this qualifying talk, all this... Everything that he's saying right here, I think the word that he's totally missing, and it's because he doesn't understand what the sacrament of the altar is or does. I think what he should be saying is, we're forgiven. Yes, that is the New Testament. You you are absolutely forgiven. This is what explains you as a, what do you say, a church and a movement and whatever else, right? You mm-hmm. You are forgiven. The passage continues, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to draw your attention to something that caught my attention. I want to draw your attention to one little word, proclaim. Do you see that the Lord's Supper, that communion that any Sunday morning service with bread and wine is about proclaiming something. It's not about inspecting something. It's not about qualifying for something. It's not about getting cleansed for something. It's not about being purified for something. It is about proclaiming something. And so I wonder if we're missing it. I wonder if we're missing the central meaning many times of the Lord's Supper because we are trying to get cleansed instead of proclaiming. We are trying to purify instead of proclaim. We are trying to get right instead of pronouncing that He made us right. We are trying to qualify instead of realizing He qualified us. We are trying to cleanse instead of celebrate. We are trying to do something new rather than celebrate what's already done. Do this in remembrance of me, he said, and yet we make it about me. So the very act of the the very sacramental ritual here 
Paul is saying, the eating and the drinking is a proclamation of the death and the return of Jesus. It's kind of like a sermon without words, number one. Number two, it's also the occasion. Paul does not say that your eating and drinking is the proclamation. What he does is he talks about the content of an apostolic sermon at the celebration of the Eucharist. Go on. So whenever the the apostolic word is proclaimed in connection with the Eucharist, that is when you get up, read the epistle, read the gospel, preach a sermon, that is the proclamation that accompanies the celebration of the sacrament of the altar. So the liturgy that Lutherans practice is the service of the word, which is followed by, as you said earlier, the crescendo. The service of the word leads up to this crescendo, which is called the service of the sacrament. Lutherans actually get duped into coming to two services on Sunday. Service of the word, service of the sacrament. What you're saying here is the service of the word, the reading of the word of God, the proclamation of the word of God. This is what Paul is saying when he speaks of this proclamation, that which takes place before the service of the sacrament. Yes. You can find this in Acts um, when Lucky falls out the window. Yes, Eutychus. Eutychus. Eutychus falls out the window. And what's going on there? They're celebrating the sacrament. And Paul, you know, the reason Eutychus falls out of the window is because he falls asleep while Paul's proclaiming. Yeah, it was a long day. They gather at night. No doubt it's dark. They got the oil lamps going on. Lucky's sitting in the window. Paul is doing a lot of proclaiming that night. He is full. And Lucky falls asleep. And they are celebrating the sacrament that evening. And this is how... Well, anyway, this, that's the point. It, is, that, is that sure? You can say that the act of the sacrament is a, is a proclamation of, a proclamation in a sense without words of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but more important, it's the occasion for the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, de- death and return of Jesus. Which is what we would call the divine service. Correct. Which, which is interesting. I mean, just think about this. You know, there, there was a time in Lutheranism when, for whatever reason, I don't want to go into it, it was way more rare to celebrate the sacrament every Sunday in every divine service. And now that's, that's turned around, praise God, because that's what our confessions say. So that was the last 100 years or 50 years or something. Court Marquardt, uh, in, his, in his book on the church, says basically that the, the proclamation of the gospel, that is the sermon, is inconceivable without the celebration of the sacrament. In other words, it's not that the proclamation occurs and then celebration of the sacrament is an appendix. It's that the celebration of the sacrament is the thing and brings along with it the proclamation of the word, which is really interesting. Well, if we go back to what MacArthur said when we pulled that commentary off the shelf to analyze what he said about the mysterion, the divine word reveals what the mysteries are. Well, when you're proclaiming, as we've said before, most, if not all, of our sermons speak of these mysteries. And it's the divine word that is revealing the mystery, 
and then I'll be doggone, we're going to turn around and do what? Partake of the mystery itself. Right. And the recitation, wouldn't you say even the recitation of the words of institution are themselves a proclamation of, of the death and the return of Jesus? How did Farley get us down this rabbit trail? He, he has said that he's read something interesting and, and he's looking at proclamation and somehow or another that this is supposed to be when one takes the Lord's Supper that it's... This is the primary thing. So basically what he's done is he's turned this notice of Paul's into the, the primary thing of the sacrament. Do you see... The invitation this morning, God is saying He has qualified you. I wonder, would you be willing this morning even to utter these three words in celebration? He qualified me. Will you say that with me this morning? He qualified me. That didn't sound qualified. You sounded unqualified. Let's go for it again. He qualified me. Now, I wonder if you would dare to say that when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. I wonder if you would dare to say that as you lift the glass to your lip. I wonder if you would dare to say that if you lifted that morsel of bread up to your mouth and you were partaking in remembrance of Him and your thought, your only thought, your pure thought, a strong thought is that He qualified me. You know what a Lutheran would say, Pastor Kearns, using that qualification terminology? As he is eating the host and drinking the wine, a Lutheran would say, he is qualifying me because he's giving this to me for what? The forgiveness of my sins. There you go. But here's my question. What if I don't do that? That's a good point. So he's, he's dropping law here. Yep, there's another thing we got to do. Yep. A man made law, you got to get up here and you got to say this truly and purely. He qualified me. Well, what if I don't? Why can't I just say thank you? You know, right, right, Lutherans, in a way, right, they say right. thank you by doing what? They just make the sign of the cross. And then they pray the prayer at the end of the Eucharist. Or they, they give you thanks. Or they reverence the altar. Sure. You have experienced this. And, and people, you know, they'll. You hand them the body of Christ, and they say what? Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, yeah. you know, I'm just the mailman here. Exactly. You know, I don't really exactly. usually say thank you to the mailman because he's doing his job. I don't have to say you qualified me. No, number one, you don't have to do that. And number two, that's to get the theology wrong. It's to mistake the fact that you're going to the sacrament for, on the basis of some qualification, that is actually given in the sacrament, which is the forgiveness of sins. What I hope is that our listeners, if they've made it this far, you can see how screwed up one's thinking is when God says, this is what it is. We as Christians are just supposed to say, well, what do you know? Right, there you go. I love that. Yeah, what do you know? This is what God wants to do for me. Right. I mean, and and we could go back to a six-day creation where God just made it ex nihilo, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. We can't do this. We weren't there. We read that account and we go, huh, well, what do you know? Right. And there's an inveterate desire on the part of the sinful human heart to say, "Mm, 
Really? God? And that's what's going on here. It's like God has given you a puzzle. All the pieces fit in. He's even given you the box, the way that the puzzle is supposed to look. You don't have to, like, figure this out all by yourself. No. He said, here it is. Here it is. Here's the way it looks. And it's, and it's well, not a thousand pieces. It's like a child's puzzle. It's only got, like, 10 or 12 pieces. And here's the, here's the irony. When he put it in the box, he put all the pieces in place. So it's like you pull it out of the box, and you're like, whoa, that's cool. That's a map of America. But what Farley is doing is he's dumped it all over, and now he's trying to put California in New Jersey, and it doesn't work. Do you realize that is the frame of mind that God wants from us? That's the frame of mind he wants from us. Because when you have confidence in celebrating, it is because you have invested in Jesus Christ fully and you've agreed with the Father about what the Son has done. Do you agree with the Father about what the Son has done? Then this partaking is truly a celebration, nothing more. Well, I'm so glad I've got Farley McFarley to to tell me the truth, right? Well, Farley McFarley doesn't agree with what the Father says the Son has done. What? Well, what did the Son do? He instituted a meal um, that's bread and wine uh, and said to his disciples, take it, eat it. This is my body. It's for you. It's for the forgiveness of my sin, your sins. Uh, and all of this, he, he, he has denied. The son objectively did this. This is what three gospels and one epistle writer report. And he's denying that. So I guess we've seen now in Corinth what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be the bread and the wine. It was supposed to be in remembrance of him. It was supposed to be a proclaiming and a celebrating So then the big question is, what was going wrong? I mean, they had to to examine. They were told to examine themselves. So what did they need to examine? Well, we're not left in the dark about this. In verse 17, the mystery begins to unfold. And friend, it is not what you think. It is not needing to drum up a week's worth or a year's worth of sins. It is not what you think. It is not a cleansing ritual. Watch this, verse 17. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you people. I can't. I cannot encourage this. I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but look at this, for the worse. You're coming together as a Corinthian congregation. You're coming together as an American assembly. You're coming together under this denomination or that one. But I can't praise what you're doing because when you get together, things go south pretty quick. That's what he's saying. How do they go south? Well, in the first place, When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you 
And in part, I believe it. Look, I don't believe everything I hear, but I take it with a grain of salt. But in part, I do believe there's some factions. There must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, there's a group who knows what they're doing. And then there's a group who doesn't know what they're doing. There's a group whom God approves of in the way they're celebrating. And then there's a group that God disapproves of in the way they're celebrating And this has to become obvious. And I've heard about these divisions among you. He says, therefore, when you meet together, look at you people. It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Now... Mystery solved, people. This has now been fully revealed. It is over. What is it that is the problem? One is hungry. Another is drunk. You guys need to examine what you're doing. Now, does this hold for today? Absolutely. I would say for church without religion. I would say for any congregation out there in the world. If you are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, or you are eating up all the food, or grabbing the tray of bread and running around behind the building to scarf it all down and leaving nothing for others, then yeah, duh, examine what you're doing. But do you see, is this a call for you to drum up every sinful thought you entertained last month? Every sinful action you took last month. Is this a call for you to bring up your track record in seven minutes or less in order to qualify for the tray that is coming down your row? No, friend. In context, there's a totally different meaning here. Remember what we've been talking about for weeks. Many of these people are nuts. Aren't they? One has taken his father's wife. Others are uh, worshiping their baptizer. Talking about who baptized them and therefore they're of this group or that group or the other group. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. We could go on with the bathhouses and the pagan rituals and all that is in Corinth. Some of these people are just nuts. (laughs) And so these attitudes of me, 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 me have infiltrated the church and they have tainted the Lord's Supper and they have ruined it for the congregation. And Paul is coming down hard on them. He's saying, you guys aren't even really eating the supper. When you come together, you've lost total sight of Jesus. You've lost focus. You've lost purpose. It's about stuffing your belly And getting drunk. You're off base here. You need to examine what you're doing. What? Seriously? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God, your own people? Do you want to shame those who have nothing? We're talking about the poor people among you. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? 
in this I will not praise you. Here he's calling the sinful behavior of the Corinthians nuts, not sinful. And this connects back to his earlier thing. Well, that was when he started this entire series. Correct. And we and that is a previous, just one previous from this, mm-hmm. if you want to listen to that, if you haven't listened to that. So that's important to take up. You know, the thing that he breezed over pretty quickly, and I think that is very problematic, is in verse 20, uh, when you come together at the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's what St. Paul says. So what Paul is saying is he's denying, what he's doing is he's saying, look, you might think whatever you're doing is the Lord's Supper, but it's not. What he's done is he's conflated the Lord's Supper and this getting together as if Paul is conflating the two. Paul's not. He's separating the two. The two being the Lord's Supper and this love feast? Or whatever it is. you know, Whatever we, it's called, yeah, this meal? This meal. Mm-hmm. So th- maybe there's some mistake on their part that, uh, that just whenever they get together and eat, that's the Lord's Supper. Paul's saying, no, that's not the Lord's Supper. And, and I'll tell you, I'll remind you of what that is in a little bit. But there is this problem in the Corinthian congregation that they, they've conflated this party, eating and drinking, with, with the Lord's Supper. And they're failing to do a key thing, uh, which is to proclaim uh, the Lord's death until he comes again. And, and Paul actually tacks that on at the end of the words of institution. But this slide is very interesting because he's, he's introduced the idea of, of self-examination at this point in time, which Paul has not done here. He has not said, examine yourselves. That's going to come up a little bit later. This was a meal. This wasn't just a morsel of bread like we take today. This wasn't just a shot glass of Welch's grape juice as we take today. This was a meal. There was real wine and there was real bread, but there was also a meal. And for those who had nothing, let me tell you, this was the best meal They had all week. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting in expectation of this church meeting because it was very much like a potluck. You know, imagine your favorite potluck. You go for a church potluck and you bring your dish, but you also get to benefit from everybody else and what they brought. That's what it was like. Now imagine being impoverished. Imagine being one who had nearly nothing. Maybe you couldn't even bring a dish to the table to celebrate this. And so you come in eager expectation of the best meal you've had all week. And then people that you called friends showed up early, ate it all up. There's nothing left but empty folding tables maybe a potato chip or two, and you're there hungry with your children, ready to eat, expecting it to be what it was last week, but it is not. The food is gone. Not to mention your best buddy, Aegeus. Oh yeah, he's over there in the lazy boy, drunk as a skunk, passed out, asleep. You know, if weeks and weeks go by of this behavior... Aegeus over there, he's going to prove himself to be a sick individual. People eventually get sick from alcoholism. Some of them even die. But passing out is definitely part of the equation. Pastor Bus, I realize that 
Ray Charles could see what's going on, and so could Helen Keller. But do you see what's happening right here? That is so interesting. He snuck in these things that are associated today with drunkenness, passing out and... and getting sick? Getting, getting sick and alcohol poisoning and dying. Yep. Uh, which Paul brings up in uh, verse 30 of chapter 11. Very novel. So he's cherry-picking certain things out of Paul's discourse... And then he is ascribing certain meanings that I really don't think Paul ever intended. And he's connecting this little discourse uh, that begins at chapter 11, verse 17, on this meal that is, as he says, like a potluck or whatever we might imagine. Okay. And clearly there were people taking advantage of this meal. Absolutely. But as you said earlier, this has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. But there is a a misunderstanding on the part of the Corinthians that whatever this is, is the Lord's Supper. Because Paul has to clarify it for him. He says, when you get together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And, you know, maybe that's obvious to them and they know it. Uh, and he's saying, no, what you really ought to be doing when you get together is having the Lord's Supper. Uh, or maybe it's not obvious to them. And they're thinking that this potluck is the Lord's Supper. He's going to correct that. But what Paul says, beginning at verse 27 of this chapter, is pertinent to the Lord's Supper, not to the love feast. And so this was the Greek lifestyle. But it was the Greek lifestyle brought into the Lord's Supper, and that was the problem. And so the poor people are embarrassed, they're shamed, they're disregarded, they're belittled, they're not considered. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Now let's hit the pause button and say, all right church, given what you've seen so far, if I were to tell you, let us then examine ourselves, wouldn't it make sense what we need to examine? It would. It would be as clear as day, would it not? We need to examine our practices. We need to examine our selfishness. We need to examine how much wine we're drinking. We need to examine the idea of showing up early and stealing the food from others. We need to examine our practices, not our recent month of personal sins in order to qualify. We have already said this, Pastor Bruss, in what? Farley McFarley has already said, but I do think it's important to break in here and say, you know, he's right, but yet at the same time he's wrong. He is correcting an incorrection with an incorrection. Right. So, so he's correct. You know, if these sinful behaviors are occurring, that um, the, the, the wealthy are segregating themselves from the poor within the body of Christ, and the wealthy are chowing down and the poor get nothing whatsoever— uh, yeah, this, this is absolutely sinful behavior to be repented of and should be taken up in one self-examination. But to limit it to that, uh, there, there's no, I just don't see where he's getting this from. And again, remember, there's a sharp Paul transitions beginning at verse 23 into a discussion of what the Lord's Supper really is. He's been talking about the love feast thus far. Now we're going to talk about what the Lord's Supper really is. If it's for the forgiveness of sins, then 
an acknowledgement of one's need for the forgiveness of sins is critical. I mean, how in the world does this apply to the church today? We already know in the evangelical church, they don't even use wine. So that's out the window. It doesn't matter how much juice that you drink. You're not going to get drunk. Nobody's doing that. But even in our church, and any church that I know of that has a chalice or has individual glasses of wine, nobody is getting drunk off of that. You know, what's funny is, is that the number of services that you and I lead uh, as a result of uh, the current pandemic, if there's anybody who should be sloshed by the end of the day, it's us because we consume more wine than the average parishioner. Right. Unfortunately, way more uh, oftentimes when there's leftover. Yeah, it's it's an awful lot. And then after five services... You get a tummy ache. Yeah. yeah. You do. I do. The Lord bless you and keep you. <laughs> do you see the difference? What a shame and what a sham. Because we should be raising our glasses to heaven, giving thanks for Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and drinking and partaking with confidence. Instead, we've lifted out a sentence. Let him examine himself. We've lifted out a sentence. And with our background of Catholicism plus Protestant Reformation plus lack of clarity on the finished work, we have somehow made it into a purification without a human priest, a purification without a confession booth, a purification before we eat and drink. And the purity of God's Word speaks this morning to each soul listening. The purity of God's Word speaks and says, He has qualified you. You can celebrate with confidence and thanksgiving. Amen? Amen, Pastor Bros. No. Uh, so, so he's turned the whole thing on its head. He's turned the, this meal that the Lord Jesus gave to forgive sins into a meal that is a celebration. Okay, two, two very different things. By the way, we've said before the directionality in that is completely cattywampus. Right, right. So we're, we're lifting our glass to God. I mean, think about this. This just mixes things up. It gets the entire for you directionality on its head. Right. The forgiveness of sins is coming from God to me. My celebrating in confidence that I have been qualified is me to God. Right. If I've got that qualification and confidence, why would I possibly need, want to do this thing? Yeah, I can have that confidence without partaking. Sure you can. You can do it while you're eating cheese and crackers on your couch watching the Packers. So this makes no sense to me. And he's just glossing straight over, let a man therefore examine himself and thus eat and drink. I just find it very interesting that he's saying, here it is, right here. This is the purity of the scriptures. It's right. just telling us very clearly. It is telling us very clearly. But it goes back to what you said earlier. God says this, and Farley here is saying, no, it's not It's not this, it's, it's that. Right. Right, and and this is building a, a kind of an inverted pyramid off of some point in the text that, that he's importing elsewhere. Examine yourself, it says, and now, I guess, we see a little better. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy 
manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now we ask a very simple question, don't we? What's the unworthy manner? If you were to write out one sentence concerning what's the unworthy manner, what would it be? Give us one sentence, Pastor Bruss. It would be not recognizing or believing what the Lord is giving in his sacrament. Now, there's a lot going into that. Uh, From the words of Christ, this is my body, this is my blood, what is one to believe? That it's his body and that it's his blood. Given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Good, okay, yeah. From the words for the forgiveness of your sins, what what is one to believe? That this is God's gift to me to forgive my sins. Uh, From that word, sins, what am I to believe? That I am a sinner. Now, if I approach the sacrament of the altar disbelieving either what God says about me as a sinner or that he's doing it for me for the forgiveness of sins or that it's for me and not my, you know, yippee for Yahweh to God, then I am guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Correct? That's what Paul's saying. So let's hear the way that Farley would explain the unworthy manner. The unworthy manner is drunkenness and selfishness, period. Well, la-di-da. So... What he's done is he's taken the drunkenness and selfishness. That uh, was clearly there. Oh, totally there. Yep. But is occurring where? At the love feast. Right. In the big, uh, you know, potluck supper. And now he's saying that, that this is the unworthiness of the Lord's Supper. But Paul has totally shifted gears. Paul never said that you're getting drunk and chowing down too much on the bread and wine, the body and blood of the Lord Christ. Did he? No. Never. But now what he's doing is he's saying that's exactly what's happening when Paul has not said that at all. Wow. Leave it to Farley. You know, right, leave it to Farley. (laughs) The unworthy manner is gluttony and thinking of you. The unworthy manner is ignoring the Lord's Supper and doing this other thing that's about your stomach. That's the unworthy manner. But you fast forward 2,000 years later, and what have we done? We have taken this phrase, an unworthy manner, and we have made it about the lie you told six weeks ago, and now you can't drink. We've made it about the thing you thought four weeks ago, and now you can't drink. We've made it about the thing that you did so long ago, but God's brought it up again this morning, and you've got only three minutes now before that cup hits your row, and you've got to somehow get right, and there better be some crying. Right? And so, man, there is a beautiful place for godly sorrow, There's a beautiful place for repentance. There's a beautiful place for changing your mind and turning away from sin and saying no to sin and saying yes to God. How often? Every single time that counselor living within is going to guide us away and show us a new, better way to think and to act. But that's not the question. The question is, on Sunday morning, when the elements come your way, are you okay? And the answer is, you're more than okay. He has 
qualified you. All right, we're letting him go on and on here because he is so far off the reservation and there really is nothing more than we can add other than this. This goes back to what you said earlier. Then why take the Lord's Supper? Yeah, what's he, what's even the point? So let's remind our listeners here that the, the Lutheran view, he's not going after the Lutheran view. This is some sort of apparently... Uh, practiced thing around Lubbock that he's aware of. Um, well, no, it probably goes back to wh- what he opened with, with this place in South Bend, Indiana. Oh, sure. That's exactly right. That's where he learned it. Yeah. Where you were just, you know, supposed to get down in your cups. People will approach the sacrament of the altar with ver- in varying moods. I think we've already said this now. You know, you see people with tears in their eyes uh, at the rail. You see people with smiles on their faces at the rail. Those emotions on the outside mask they don't give us a clear view into their into their heart at all but the only worthiness is is the worthiness of in a sense being unworthy right he is truly worthy who has faith faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins so again one recognizes oneself as a sinner in need of this great meal apart from that why do it there's no good reason But a man must examine himself because of the unworthy manner, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Does it ever say he shouldn't eat? No. Does it ever say let the cup pass? No. We made that up. We made it up. Everybody is eating and drinking in this passage. Nobody is letting the cup pass. Nobody is leaving because the confession ritual didn't go well. It's not in the passage. We made it up. So, Corinthians, make sure you're not acting in selfishness. Make sure you're not getting drunk and eat and drink in a worthy manner. So simple, is it not? So simple. The truth will set you free. That kind of burns me a little bit, Pastor Bros. Uh, because it's it's he's taken the real simplicity of the scriptures and uh, built a very convoluted argument to get at a what he's uh, peddling as another simplicity, and then turns around and says, "See, the truth will set you free. If right. you'll just believe exactly the the vomit I'm spewing here, then uh, then the truth will set you free too. Then, then you're good. Yep. So he's right. It, it, apparently, um, you know, there are people who are receiving the sacrament unworthily. So, in a sense, everybody's eating. Um, but, you know, Paul, he skipped over this, this uh, verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself when he doesn't discern the body. So, such a person really ought not to receive. If I'm not mistaken, though, he's getting ready to talk about that verse. And oh, boy. Talk, talk specifically about what, what the body is. It is so simple, and yet we make it complicated. What in the world could take a straightforward passage and make it so twisted? I'll tell you what. Guilt and condemnation and accusation of the enemy. God wants you to try to get what you've, um, get what you've already got? No. The enemy wants you to try to get what you've already got. Satan wants you to try to get what you've already got. Do you see that? And so the question is, on Sunday morning, are you trying to get what you've already got? Or are you celebrating what you got? Because God's got you. 
And he's already gotten for you what you needed to get. Amen? Then why go to church at all? If you've already got it, if you've been forgiven and that's in the rearview mirror, there is no need to go to hear the preaching of God's word. There's no need to receive the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament. Why even go to church? Because Andrew Farley is there, and he is always preaching something new and novel and something you have never heard before. That's why you go. It's because he's so interesting. That's a scary thing, isn't it? You know, you go for the goods. And, you know, what he's done is he's he has taken the way the Lord has set this thing up, right? So <clears throat> baptism also now saves you. When I got baptized, I got saved. When I got baptized, I received the Holy Spirit. When I got baptized, I was justified. But faith lives off of the gospel. Faith doesn't live off of anything else. It lives off the gospel. And the gospel is a word that is delivered to you. And so the Christian is, as Jesus says, right, in the Beatitudes, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It's a recognition that the Lord has something that I lack. Now, he has already destroyed this whole thing by saying that simul justus et peccator is not even a category. He's dead wrong because he even flies in the face of Jesus' own words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the life of the Christian. It's a constant hunger and thirst for what we, what we have and don't have. So he, he can't get the already but not yet kind of thing that is the Christian life, and the fact that the Lord actually uses that human wiring to keep bombing us with the gospel, with the pronouncement that your sins are for Christ's sake forgiven. It's the finished work we celebrate, and the enemy wants to say it's unfinished. All right, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Notice the judgment is coming upon himself. That's interesting. If he does not judge the body rightly. Now, I would ask you, where is the judgment coming from? Now, there's a little hint that at the beginning of this message, we heard about where the judgment was coming from. We saw two words, divisions and factions. Do you remember that? He said, I hear that there are divisions among you and there are factions among you, and in part, I believe it. So now I would ask you, if there's two groups, two factions, and there's division, who is judging whom? Well, they're judging each other. The poor people come in, who are they judging? Look at Aegeus over there, drunk as a skunk, thinking about himself, not thinking about us. What a selfish person. And then maybe somebody else is thinking, well, well, well look, at, look at this guy. He showed up at, at, at 8 o'clock in the morning and ate up all the food. Now we've got nothing for lunch. And on and on it goes the selfishness and the judgment calls and the drunkenness and the finger pointing. Do you see? That's what's happening. That if I show up to this church service... Did you just hear that? Judgment is not coming from God toward the person in the form of some... This is why some of you are sick. This is why some of you are weak, and this is why some of you sleep. 
The judgment is not coming from God. It's coming from these different factions and divisions within the church. So it's a it's a horizontal judgment as opposed to a vertical top-down. Your point is so well taken that any judgment that's worth its salt that, that leads to sickness and death is not a human judgment. It's a divine judgment. Do you think that 2,000 years of church history have viewed this judgment as being the poor folks to the gluttonous folks? No. No? No. Do you think that 2,000 years from church fathers, all of that, do you think that they have viewed this judgment as being uh, drunkenness on a part of, what's his name? Aegeus. Over there in the Lazy Boy? No. Drunk as a skunk? No. Huh. Then where is this coming from? From the search for novelty. And I don't judge the body rightly. Okay, what could that mean? Well, you got a, a few choices. Maybe you got three choices. We'll entertain all three. Here they are. Judge the body rightly, the body of Christ. Judge or discern the body of Christ and what this is about in our coming together. Judge the body rightly, the body of Christ hanging on that cross. Discern that that is worth respect and honor, and that's what we do in remembrance of that body. Or judge the body rightly and not allow my body to get drunk and participate in gluttony and selfishness. It doesn't matter which interpretation you come up with. No matter what, you're not dimming the lights and playing the sad music and trying to get right through a confession ritual. I think it does matter what interpretation you come up with. It absolutely does, and he has left out a significant one, hasn't he? You were just mentioning this. that he, So he's given us three, but in the context, Pastor Kearns, could you, you know, just sort of look in the text? When was the last time body was mentioned in here? You're probably still talking about chapter 11, but in chapter 10 it was, is the cup that we bless not a participation with the blood? And is the bread that we break not a participation in the body of Christ? There you go. So he specifically referred the word soma, body, to the element of bread in the Eucharist. What? So it's not the church? It's not the church. It's and not the dead body hanging upon the cross? No. It's not the body who... The, the uh, one of, you carry? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and then, interestingly enough, this... So it starts there at verse in chapter 10, and it continues on. It continues on, and we find that Jesus himself says, This is my body, which is for you. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In words of institution. Then verse 27. So that uh, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So he So he's talking about the body and blood of the Lord, i.e. the bread and the wine that the pastor is saying the verba over. Correct. The elements of the sacrament of the altar. So this not judging the body, not discerning the body, and that's interesting. I don't know where he what translation he's looking at, right? Not rightly judging rightly judging the body 
discerning the body, perceiving that this is the body, what the pastor has in his hand in the host is the body of Christ. And putting into the communicant's mouth. Correct. The point is, can we do this in unity? Can we do this with good motives? Can we celebrate Jesus? Can we celebrate the finished work of Christ? Can we judge can we discern that the congregation has come together? That's what I think it means. Can we discern that the body of Christ is here today to celebrate this beautiful finished work of Christ and not turn it into something ugly and disrespectful? And if we would just judge this rightly then we wouldn't be eating and drinking at 8 o'clock in the morning judgment upon ourselves when they show up and criticize us, and rightly so. Rightly so. We deserve the criticism. Look at what we're doing. Wow. Again, you've pointed this out, but the judgment is coming through the people we're rightly judging you for being drunk at eight. On a thimble-sized glass of wine. Right. Again, he's conflated the love feast, whatever that is, uh, in verses 17 following, with the sacrament of the altar, which Paul is trying to say, no, 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 when you get together, this is what you need to be doing. Um, now he's mixed them up again. And then on top of that, he said that the body that one needs to judge rightly is the body of Christ, not upon the cross, but the body of Christ that the pastor is consecrating, elevating. But he hasn't said that. No. No, no. Then he's going to fracture, and then he's going to give out. He says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Now, there's a whole stream. I won't go into it, but there's a whole stream of Christian movement that says that God will get you. God's going to get you at the Lord's Supper if you do this wrongly. If you don't do this rightly, then He is going to strike you with weakness, and He's going to strike you with sickness, and He's going to kill you over there. Look at you. Now, isn't it ironic? You talk about the enemy. I mean, isn't it ironic that we're celebrating there's no punishment left. It's finished. We're celebrating the body and blood of Jesus, no condemnation for those in Christ. That's what we're celebrating. And then here comes a doctrine that says, yeah, but he might judge you and kill you at the Lord's Supper at the celebration. You're celebrating no condemnation, but he might condemn you. You're celebrating total forgiveness, but he might hold it against you. You're celebrating no punishment, but he might punish you at the celebration. Do you see the irony in that? How foolish. It just gets worse and worse as it goes along, doesn't it? It, it does. So before Judas stood the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Judas, for whatever reason... Um, despaired of that, disbelieved it. Um, seems to have been a follower, well, was a follower clearly of Jesus, but whether he received him in belief or unbelief is, is not clear. What is the judgment upon Judas for 
physically spending three years with Jesus and disbelieving, is he condemned by God? I mean, does God not have any wrath when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, it's for you for the forgiveness of sins, and you say, meh, not so much, God. When you play fast and loose with his word, is there no judgment? What does he say about the prophets who lie? He's against them. But if we were to attempt to follow his logic, what he's saying is is that believers have no condemnation. And so how in the world can they come to the Lord's Supper and quite possibly receive some sort of judgment from God when there is no condemnation for them? I think that's what I think that is what he's saying. But your point is that's illogical. It's totally illogical. Can a Christian persist in sin and avoid God's judgment? The answer is no. Can can, can you as a believing Christian dig your heels in and say, I know what you said, God, but I don't believe it. And there is no judgment from God? I very much doubt that. And so, again, I guess we put our thinking caps on and we apply the most obvious interpretation, right? What is it that would cause a group of Greek people to become weak and some of them to even come down with sickness of some kind and some of them to either pass out or eventually die, and the answer is the same today, alcoholism. So, Pastor Bruss, is it alcoholism? You know, um, <laughs> it's what's fascinating to me is that in the Scriptures, these words do not get applied to sickness, you know, like, what? what is the sickness? Puking, or is it, you know, did they even know you had liver disease if you were an alcoholic? I have no idea. Um, weakness, I mean, weakness is not one of the, if, if this is associated with drinking culture at all in ancient Greece, this weakness, that term gets used for the, uh, falling prey to eros, to, to love, um, in a, in a symposium. So, um, that to me seems specious, um, and, and this falling asleep that's being passed out. Yeah, according to him, but in the scriptures, particularly in Paul, death is asleep. Why? Because Jesus has totally defeated death and all the dead in the whole world are going to rise on the last day. So don't you think if this was alcoholism, St. Paul would have maybe elaborated a little bit more like he did in other places? Do not get drunk with wine, but be ye therefore filled with the Holy Spirit. Good. I think so. And and, and there's this focus only... You know, but he if didn't the, need to because that's not what he's talking about. Exactly. If, 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 the sin, if the sin here, as he has said, is selfishness, gluttony, gluttony, and drunkenness, there's nothing corresponding to selfishness and gluttony here, right? He doesn't say that. That's why some of you have become parus, <laughs> fat. And he doesn't say this is why some of you have been, you know, kind of ostracized by the group because you're such a bunch of selfish ninnies. So Paul's talking about something different from alcohol poisoning. He's talking about people who come to the sacrament of the altar and they do not believe what is happening in that moment. They are not judging the body rightly. 
the body that the pastor holds in his hand and will put in their mouth. And there is a sickness that comes from this. What's the sickness unto death is what it is. And you stand under God's judgment. Uh, you suffer this sickness under death, unto death justly, uh, whereas the Christian is freed from this sickness unto death. You know, you mentioned Lucky falling out of the church window a little while ago, and we failed to bring up the fact that when Paul ran down there, he said about this dead boy, there's life in him. Now, he wasn't talking about finding a pulse. pulse. On holding a mirror in front of his face. Right. He's talking about the fact that this boy has just taken the very life of Jesus, the undying body of Jesus, into his own body. Right. And as a result of that... He will rise to everlasting life, and here, miraculously, he, is, he rises from death. But even that rising of death was temporary. Correct. In the sense that Eutychus, he was going to have a real funeral, but the next time Eutychus rises, which will be on the last day at the return of Christ, this is a rising unto life immortal. Correct. So you're, what I think what you're saying is that that really what happens in the sacrament, right? Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Uh, receiving what the Lord gives there uh, in faith and what, he, and what he says it is and what he says it's for gives life and salvation so that the Christian really can look at his cancer, at his... COVID-19. COVID-19, at his own lying in a casket as... Nothing but sleep. Alcoholism, gluttony. I mean, we could bring out medical statistics for those who drink too much and eat too much and what results over months and years of time, even within a congregation. Christians are not immune to that. So Paul had gotten in touch with the uh, CDC for Rome and discovered that there was a higher incidence of, <laughs> of, of alcohol-related death and, uh, what, fat death, uh, diabetic death in Corinth? Or maybe if he applies the same logic, let's go back to Eutychus for a second. Eutychus at the Divine Service was just completely sloshed. He's meat drunk because he ate too much, he sits in the window, he falls asleep, and, you know, this is the result of what happens. Right, you know? yeah. This is very fanciful. But the point is, it does not say, for this reason, God strikes you. We have made God the agent when he is not. We have made God the instigator, even the killer, when he is not. Jesus Christ died so you wouldn't have to. Jesus Christ suffered and died for your sins so that you wouldn't die for your sins. That is Gospel 101. That is Gospel 101. Yes. Now, this brings to mind a conversation I had with, um, with, with somebody this past week. They wanted to know, were there other people 
who say weren't Lutherans, are they Christian? Gratefully, yes. And it's because of what Farley just said right here. Yes, the gospel was clearly articulated here. And he does a good job of articulating Gospel 101. Right. But don't let Farley get to Gospel 201. No. Or 301. God forbid, 401. That's a good point. That's a very good point. He's failing to see how how God has the winning mechanism and the delivery mechanism. He's focusing on the winning mechanism, and we do not dispute this in the least, that Jesus Christ shed his blood for the sins of the world and that the world stands uh, under a not guilty verdict. But God delivers the gift through things, through means, through pastor's lips, through reading the scriptures, through having the scriptures read to you, through a sermon, through baptism, through the sacrament of the altar, through absolution. And, and so he's, unfortunately, what he's done in this whole thing, in this whole thing, talking about this as a celebration merely of Jesus' victory, is he has severed, it's, it's kind of like the order has been made and it's just sitting in the Amazon warehouse and no truck is getting dispatched to bring it to you. You know it's there, it's great, but it's not gotten to your house yet. And going back to that 101, 201, 301 type thing, American evangelicals, praise be to God, they've got the gospel 101. They've got this. And this is why Southern Baptists are saved. Who, yes, right. Southern sure. Baptists who believe the gospel are saved, and Roman Catholics who believe the gospel are saved. This is the, Praise be to God. But I'll be doggone if that uh, uh, God wants to give more. And he realized, the thing is, is he realizes you need more to stay in the one true faith all the days of your life as you wrestle against the flesh and the world and the devil. Good. And praise God that that that, that he has um, not permitted the very me- delivery mechanisms that these groups deny uh, from going. He's not made them go out of existence in these church bodies. By their very logic, they ought to. There should be no reason for preaching any longer. There should be no reason for baptism. There should be no reason for the sacrament of the altar uh, because they deny that God does anything through them. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, man, if you take care of your own household and take care of your own business and take care of your own motives and take care of your own self coming into a church service, you wouldn't be judged by other people. If you would just judge your own self, meaning discern your own motives and have good ones, then you could skip all these divisions and factions. But oh no, they've got God in here striking people. And we've missed it. We're missing the finished work at that point. Now, he says, when we are judged, who's the judgment been by the whole time? By the people. When we are judged by the people, we are disciplined by the Lord. Do you notice those are two different verbs? When we are judged by the people because they're making judgment calls about our foolish behavior, what's the Lord doing in us? Disciplining us? Hey, you don't belong to that. You don't belong to that lifestyle. If you're in me and I'm in you, 
then I'm counseling you away from selfishness. I'm counseling you away from gluttony. I'm counseling and discipling you away from drunkenness. That's not who you are. So, is God using other people? Has God ever used other people in your life to call you to the carpet about something? Has God ever used somebody else to wave a flag and say, uh, excuse me, hello, that's, that's not of the Lord. Maybe we, maybe we should talk. And that gets you thinking that someone around you has made a judgment call about your actions? Absolutely. And God can use that. But what's most important is that God is working in them with discipline. The discipline is from the Lord. The judgment calls here are from the people around them. So that we will not be condemned along with the world. Do you think there were some unbelievers in that group? I'm sure there were. And God was trying to show them the truth as well. So we come to the end of this mystery. It's revealed. It's unraveled. It's exposed. It's so plain and obvious that it was the way they were practicing the Lord's Supper. He was not calling for an obsession with confession. He was not calling for uh, a manifestation of inspection every time. He was not calling for them to be totally consumed with their track record. What's the solution he gave them? Well, here it is, the very end, the end of the passage. So then, Paul says, my brethren, when you come together to eat, here's the solution. Four words. Wait for one another. Do you see that? He doesn't say confess 500 sins in seven minutes or less. He doesn't say turn out the lights and play the saddest hymn you can find and then try to get right. Here's his so then. When Paul says so then, you want to pay attention. Perk up, pay attention, listen carefully, read it. And consume it because this is what the whole thing's about. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, uh, wait for one another. There's an idea. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Problem solved. So that you will not come together for what? For judgment. Who's doing the judging? The people, how could you avoid the judging? Eat at home, would you? So simple. Who's doing the judging? Other people, divisions, factions. How do you eliminate the judging? Eat at home. Wait for one another. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. He qualified me. He qualified me. As you take that glass and you raise it to your lips, your thought can be, He qualified me. As you take that bread and you slip it into your mouth and you remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, the body and the blood, you can think that confident thought, He qualified me. It is not about the last month or year or week of performance. It is not about a cleansing ritual. It is not about a confession booth. It is not about getting right. It is celebrating that He made me right. He qualified me.
Say it again with me this morning. He qualified me. So what does this mean for all of us? The church, not just here, not just in Texas, not just in the United States, but globally. What does it mean for all of us? I guess I would ask you, what if we ditched the dirty worm theology? What if we ditched the groveling and the guilt complex? What if we ditched the purification ritual? What if we said, along with the author of Hebrews, by one offering, he's qualified me. By one offering, he's made me perfect forever. By one sacrifice, he's made me forgiven for all time. What if we, as a church, got up off the floor stopped our weeping and our begging and our crying and our hoping and our waiting for something more, what if we said with Jesus Christ, it is finished? Do this in remembrance of me, he said. What if it's not about you? What if it's about him? And what if he did a perfect job in making you right forever? Let's pray. Oh, I'm... You know how you feel so exasperated when you get to the end of a sermon by Randy Hand? Yes. That's how I feel now. I bet it is. <laughs> yeah, that was quite the uh, ending salvo, wasn't it? You know, to take something that is so incredibly beautiful as the sacrament of the altar and really reduce it down to what we just heard. Man, I am so glad I do not attend this church. Yeah, I am too. There's not much good reason to go to the sacrament of the altar. And again, he's got he's got gospel 101 down exactly right. That's very good. But his hermeneutic is false in this in this regard. Uh he's used gospel 101 to get rid of all of the other inconvenient stuff. But a real reading of Scripture allows the Scriptures themselves to say what Gospel 101 is, to say where it is applicable and where it is not applicable, to qualify it, to to add to it even. You know, I mean, the delivery mechanism is this beautiful thing that flows out of Gospel 101, that God doesn't want you to guess about these things. He wants you to eat it in your mouth to feel it on your forehead in baptism, to have your pastor's hand make the sign of the cross on your forehead in absolution, to, to hear it from the lips of the man that God called to forgive your sins, that your sins are forgiven. He's missing all that. Sure, and we've had several limping analogies, and this is one that I'm thinking of here now. As you know, we renovated our basement, and there's no natural light down there. It's it's very dark, and so one of the things that we had done was, you know, LED lights put down there by our electrician. Well, I thought it was interesting how the switch itself has a, a faint light within it, which at first when I saw it, I thought, why in the world do you need that? Well, when the light is out and it is pitch black, it's kind of good to know where the light is. The, or, the light switch. You light, can, yeah, you can make yeah, your way there. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So the idea is Gospel 101 is standing in my dark basement acknowledging, hey, there's a light right there. 
showing you where the switch is. And you go over and you flip the switch. And my goodness, the place just lights up. Gospel 101 is the light on the light switch. And the sacraments, holy moly, that's when the light switch is turned on and everything is illumined. Gets clear. Yep. That was a great analogy. And this gets us uh, to the end of our wrestling with uh, Andrew Farley <laughs> well, once you know, again. Ever since he started this series in 1 Corinthians, you know, and I even sent him an email to say, listen, we're, we're waiting with anticipation for you to get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, he got here and he got here quick. And I'm glad we're done. <laughs> yes. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the plucked chicken. <laughs>